0: Well, some of you know that I am a bird lover. Can y'all hear me okay? Is every, uh, uh, I'm a bird lover. I uh, started loving birds once COVID started and I was at home. But I had the joy last year of watching a little nest of robins. Um, I peeked out my, my window, my bedroom window at the crepe myrtle that's right outside my window. And I noticed straw hanging down. And so I went out and checked it out, and there were these little heads popping up. And I thought, they're baby robins. And so I watched them kind of progress, and the mom and dad, or I don't know if it was just the mom or what, but they would come and feed the babies. The mom. the mom. okay, Yes, probably. <laughs> and, uh, and then one by one, there were only like four babies that I could see. It was a little bit tall for me, and I could just see the little heads, but there were four little heads, and, and one by one, I would see them. They, I mean, they'd be gone. Uh, I'd see maybe the night before, I'd look out, and one of the little babies would be on the limb, just kind of trying to see, I, can I do this? Well, it finally came, they left, one by one, and then one day, I looked out, and there's one little bird left. Wouldn't leave. And he, I went out the next day, that one little bird is by himself. And I went out after work, and I gave him a pep talk. And I am not teasing. I seriously had a talk with these words to this little bird. And I said, little Robbie, listen, I know you're scared. I know you like this nest. I know that this is all you've ever known in this week of your life. And I know you're scared about, I mean, you don't want to have to go find food, but honey... You are going to miss out on so much better than this little nest. You can do it. So I want to see you gone tomorrow, okay? Next morning, still there. And I thought, well, I obviously did not make an impact with that little bird. But I came home from work, and the nest was empty. I thought about this because you're probably thinking, where is she going with the robins? But I thought about this experience as I studied this passage, because that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is addressing with these these Jewish believers. It's like, it's time for the little birdies to, to fly, to take root, to get out of that nest of what you're comfortable with and what you know And so I I just, in my mind, I'm picturing us or the readers as these little babies that are like, I really am fine where I am. I don't need to venture out. Well, you know, the author had just finished in chapter five, uh, really talking, chapter five, the end of chapter five fits better with this chapter six because he's already started to, exhort them and saying, you're you're drinking milk, but you should be eating meat by now. You've been in that nest too long. It's time for you to fly. And so he he moves into that in chapter 6. He continues that thought. And the author's challenge to his readers in this chapter is simply press on to spiritual maturity. If you don't take anything else away from this lesson... That's what I want you to remember. And let's not get bogged down in a lot of the discussion of what exactly this passage means, but remember the challenge. Press on to spiritual maturity. It's time to get out of the nest for the little birdies to fly. And so in Hebrews 6, he addressed four things to help them press on to spiritual maturity. And I want to walk through those four things with you. First, he addressed the meaning. Uh, Chapter 6, verse 1, he exhorted his readers, therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. That's his challenge. But what exactly does that mean to press on to spiritual maturity? Well, the verb in the Greek um, says, let us press on. It's, it's in a passive voice. And so we could render it better, let us be carried on. In other words, let God's spirit in you carry you on towards spiritual maturity, meaning that we don't gain spiritual maturity by striving for it on our own power. We're going to get to spiritual maturity as we yield to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and let Him carry us to maturity. You know, I've shared with you, when I was at LSU, I stopped growing. Because, number one, I didn't even understand that I had the power of the Holy Spirit in me to teach me and to help me say no to things, And once Bonnie explained to me, Cricket, you've got the Holy Spirit and all of that power in you to say no. It changed my life and I began to grow again. That is what he's talking about here. Let us be carried to spiritual maturity by the Spirit's work in us. But we have to yield to the Spirit in us and listen. So... He first addressed the meaning, and then second, he addressed the problem in the first two verses. I'm going to start again with verse 1, and then we'll move into verse 2. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. <clears throat> the problem that they were facing is that they were still holding on to the elementary teachings of Judaism. They weren't maturing. They were staying as infants with just these, these things that they knew from, from, their, from the Old Testament. It was time for these little birdies to, to leave the nest that was designed for babies. Babies but they, they were, were not moving on. And so he mentioned six elementary teachings, six foundational basic doctrines that were taught in the Old Testament. And they were designed to prepare Israel for the coming of the Messiah. And so these teachings were simply a shadow of what would be fulfilled when Christ came. And so he's telling them, don't live in the shadows experience the reality of what those shadows are pointing to, and that's life in Christ. That's what he's pushing them to do, but they're not. They're staying with those principles from their Old Testament teachings. So let's look at these six foundational principles that he mentioned in verses 1 and 2, and I'm just going to give you a quick, what was he referring to in the Old Testament? First one is repentance from dead works. And in the Old Testament, they practice rituals and works in order to receive forgiveness for their sins. They brought sacrifices. They strive to follow the Mosaic law. Thou shalt not do this. Those were a shadow of Christ in the New Testament. They were pointing to Him. So their focus shouldn't be any longer on going through those rituals becoming legalistic to come to God, but now they needed to focus on Christ and his work on the cross. So, you know, the author is saying, leave that behind. Those rituals are in the past. I mean, yes, they're foundational, but what they were pointing to has already come, so now focus on the reality of those shadows. The second uh, foundation is faith toward God. In the Old Testament, their faith was on God. I mean, they would say, you know, the Lord, your God, but they had a monotheistic thinking, one God. And there is only one God, but that was, you know, their faith. Put your faith in God. But in the New Testament, the focus shifts to the Trinity. One God, but three in one. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So now, we're to put our faith in God but in God the Son as our Savior and when we do God the Holy Spirit indwells us so there's so much more to that picture than what they all they were thinking of is God and now since Christ has come that expands to where all three parts of the Trinity are part of our, our spiritual growth third thing Third principle, instruction about washings. You know, he's not referring to the Christian baptism here, which, I mean, when I first read this, read this, I thought, yeah, uh, he's talking about Christian baptism, but he's not because the Greek word that is used here for washings is in the plural, and it's different from the singular Greek word that is used for baptism in the New Testament. So he's referring here to the ceremonial washings that the priests and the people went through in the Old Testament as they prepared to, to come to the temple or to cleanse themselves to, to try to come to God. And they cleanse themselves outwardly. And the priests, when they would come into the, the temple gates, they would cleanse themselves at the bronze labor of cleansing. But it was all outward. Now they needed to understand They are clean inwardly through the blood of Christ who washed them white as snow. They don't need to go through these rituals of cleansing anymore because Jesus has cleansed them, but it's from the inside. But leave behind those those ritualistic cleansings. Fourth, laying on of hands. And the author is not referring here to laying on hands as we read about it in the new testament where they would lay hands the apostles would lay hands on people and send them out with a mission ministry that's not what he's talking about here he is the ritual of laying on of hands is described in the book of leviticus especially leviticus 16:21 on the day of atonement the priest would place his hands on the head of a goat and confess the sins of Israel and then it was thought that those sins as he put his hands on the goat those sins of the people were transferred to the goat and he'd send the goat out into the wilderness taking their sins away that was a vicarious picture of the atonement that was the scapegoat but now we don't have to do that. They don't have to lay hands on an animal to take our sins away because Jesus took our sins away. And that's what he wanted them to understand. There's no need to lay hands on an animal to carry your sins. Jesus carried them away. Fifth, resurrection of the dead. The Jews were taught just in a general sense that there would be a resurrection of all people at the end time. It was just a general idea of this. But now, they needed to focus on the bigger picture of the resurrection. They needed to focus on the resurrection of Jesus and how his resurrection gives us hope of our resurrection and eternal life with him. And then six, eternal judgment. In the Old Testament, they knew that there would be a day when everybody would be judged. But they didn't really know. They didn't talk a lot about it. They didn't have a lot of the details. But now, the New Testament gives so many more details about it and some that can be disturbing as you read Revelation. But he's wanting them to go beyond just knowing that there's going to be an eternal judgment and learn the details How should we live in light of this? So those foundational principles represented Judaism, and they prepared the people of the Old Testament for the coming of the Messiah. Those were shadows. Jesus is what those shadows were pointing to, and he has come. And so now as Christians, they needed to move beyond the shadows to the reality from a type to an anti And so to press on to spiritual maturity, they would have to move forward from their Jewish roots. He wasn't saying totally toss those away, but build on those. Let that be the foundation. It's like when you have a house, you put a foundation, but then you build on that house and, and you don't look at the foundation anymore. You look at what you put on top of it. He's saying you've got to move on. Don't stay with just that foundation. Things are so much better. So in verse 3, he says, and this we will do if God permits. Now, we don't have to get God's permission to move on to spiritual maturity. That's not what he's saying there. He's saying that we can only move forward to spiritual maturity with God's help. We need God's help to do that. We can't do it on our own. So to help them press on to spiritual maturity, he addressed the meaning and the problem. The third thing he addressed was the warning, chapter 6, verses 4 through 8. And I'm going to begin by just focusing on verses 4 through 6. And I will tell you that these are the... Well, scholars agree, this is the most difficult passage in the New Testament. And I will verify that because I've spent the last four days doing nothing but studying this. It is hard because even the scholars disagree. So let me just start with the warning. What is the warning that he is giving them? Don't fall away. Don't become like these people I'm describing here. And then there's two questions we have to ask with that warning. Well, who is he talking about in these verses? And then second, what does it mean by fall away? Because that's what helps us kind of walk through these verses. So I am going to give you four interpretations of these verses. And these are the four that you hear the most, the most prominent ones. Um, So I'm going to jump in. There's problems with really every view, but I'm going to just jump in and walk you through this. The first uh, interpretation that we sometimes hear is that he is referring to believers who lose their salvation. When he says, for in the case, uh, and let me just read, in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. So again, we ask the question, in the case of those, who are those, who are they? And one version, one interpretation is they're believers, but they've lost their salvation. Uh, And they would say that, well, you know, he says those that have been enlightened, that's people who have seen the lie of the gospel and they believed. They've tasted of the heavenly gift. They've accepted Jesus's gift of salvation. They're partakers of the Holy Spirit, meaning that the Holy Spirit indwells them as believers. They've seen the Holy Spirit at work in them. So, I mean, they go through here and they say, these are believers, they've obviously fallen away. They've lost their salvation. But there's a problem with that view. And that is that it contradicts other passages in Scripture that talk about the perseverance of the saints. John 10:27 to 29. No one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. Um, Romans 8, 38 to 39. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Even in Romans 8, he talks about, you know, calling and and justifying and then glorifying that he carries us through the whole process of sanctification, salvation and sanctification. So for those reasons, I don't agree with this view and most of the scholars that I really Adhere to, say this is not really, it doesn't have merit because Scripture says you can't lose your salvation. So I just disregard that view. A second view is that he's referring to a hypothetical situation. He's not talking to something that, about that really happened, but he's just saying, let's suppose if a Christian could lose his salvation, which he can't, But if he would, if he could, it would be impossible for him to be saved again. It's just hypothetical. But I don't like this view either, and most scholars will disregard this, because if it's just hypothetical, then why even go through it? Why even focus on this warning if this isn't even a real situation? So the first two views I don't really, I don't think are true. But then I'm going to give you two others that I think have merit. And um, I'll tell you kind of where I stand with them. But the third view is one that my professor, Dr. Toussaint, in my seminary class at Dallas taught this view. This was the view that I wrote a paper on when I had to write an argument paper on Hebrews. This is the view I argued for. However, I'm not sure I still stand here, but... His view is that he's referring to people who have professed to be believers, but they're not. They have said the right words that yes, you know Jesus is my savior uh, they they appear to be believers, they probably hung out with the the believers and did things, and all those descriptive phrases in those verses could describe somebody who's not a believer but is just professing it. for instance, when it says that person you know, was enlightened, it could mean that they had heard the gospel, maybe even was baptized, but there was no decision. They heard it. They just rejected it. Uh, When they say tasted of the heavenly gift, uh, some say that could be referring to, they took communion with these believers, but they hadn't believed. Uh, They been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. Well, they may not have had the Holy Spirit in them, but they were partaking, they were watching the work of the Holy Spirit around the believers that they were hanging out with. They they saw the Spirit at work. Nonbelievers can see the Holy Spirit work. They can hear the Word of God. They can see the powers of the age to come and yet not believe Judas is an example of this. He was part of that circle of disciples. People thought he was a believer. I mean, he hung out. He went with Jesus. He walked around, probably even taught some. Saw God work. But he wasn't a believer. That's what this view kind of looks at and says, they profess with their mouths, but they were not truly saved. They had not put their faith in Jesus, even though they went to the body of believers, they saw God work, but just like Judas, they didn't believe. And that would fit with the next verses in in, in verses seven and eight, when he describes those two plots of ground. The water, the seed is planted on both plots, the rain comes down, but one plot bears fruit and the other plot doesn't it bears thistles and thorns the seed that was planted on one plot it just never took root in the ground and so it didn't produce fruit that's kind of a picture of what he's saying here the seed was planted like in the parable of the sower the seed was planted but it never took root it never sunk in it stayed on the surface so that's why people that take this view, that's one of the reasons they take it. They feel that it fits with Scripture, with the example of Judas. Um, that's why I took this view when I was in seminary and because Dr. Toussaint explained it very well. Um, so he was warning about people who profess to be believers but weren't, don't become like them. Don't, don't do what they did and fall away. So how does this view fit with verse 6 when he says, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. What does that mean? Impossible to renew them again to repentance. Well, I'm going to tell you what Dr. Toussaint said because I thought he could say it better than if I said it. Um, He said, that it seems that the unpardonable sin is being described here. Someone who was under deep conviction by the Holy Spirit, but they made a final and irrevocable rejection of the gospel. No, I hear the gospel. I will not believe it. And for the person committing that sin, rejecting Jesus, that's the only sin that can't be forgiven because you're saying, I don't believe it. So they can't experience repentance. And and Jim Fleming and I were talking through all this yesterday. And uh, another thing too is that they're not going to find repentance anywhere else. If they reject Jesus and go to another religion, there's no repentance there. There's no forgiveness there. Only in Jesus are you going to find it. So if you reject Jesus, there is none anywhere else. And by going back to Judaism, these people would, in a sense, be crucifying Christ all over again, like their Jewish leaders ahead of them, saying, Hey, you're not the Christ. You're not the Messiah. Crucify him. So that's how they explain all these verses with this view. But then there's a fourth view. And what makes this hard is that this is a view that another seminary professor takes, Dr. Tom Constable, who I love, Dr. Constable, I love Dr. Toussaint. I want you to see how hard this passage is because two godly men don't even take the same view. And so as I've studied more of Dr. Constable's view, I think, well, yeah, this makes sense too. His view is that the author is referring to believers who turn away from God's truth and embrace error. In other words, they become apostates. They turn away from the truth. So this interpretation says that the people that he's referring to in verses 4 and 6 are true believers but they have departed from faith in Jesus as Savior and Messiah. It may have been that they just uh, returned to their Jewish convictions and totally abandoned Christianity and said, Listen, persecution's coming. I like staying in my little nest of what I'm comfortable with in Judaism, so I- I'm going back. Um, it could be that they just publicly denied faith in Christ under pressure from a leader or a hostile crowd, and they got scared? You may say, well, I didn't know that was possible. I mean, it just means they lost their salvation, didn't they? Well, let's let's look at this a little further. Christians departed from their faith in the first century. When you start looking through some of Paul's letters, in 1 Timothy 1, 19 to 20, Paul exhorted Timothy to keep the faith and he goes on to say the faith which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Homenaeus and Alexander. These two men got shipwrecked in their faith. They rejected their faith. And it goes on, he talks about, you know, some of the things that they're teaching in Second in Timothy 2, 17 to 18. Paul talks about Hymenaeus again, but also Philetus. He describes them, they have gone astray from the truth, saying the resurrection's already taken place, and they have upset the faith of some. These were men who Paul is depicting as believers who have become apostate. You know, they, they... and in First Timothy 4, one, Paul warns Timothy about apostasy. Be careful that you don't go there. And he says, the Spirit explicitly says, Paul is saying this to Timothy, the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith. And I don't think I ever really thought about that until I started studying Dr. Constable's argument on this and I know what you're thinking you're thinking but cricket you said with the first few people can't lose their salvation you're right they can't lose their salvation he's not referring to them saying these are believers who have lost their salvation what he's saying is that these are believers who lose their rewards in heaven and they're going to face discipline on the earth Why is it impossible to renew them again to repentance? And I'm going to, again, I'm going to quote Dr. Constable uh, here because I think he says it better than I could. But he said, the word apostate refers to extreme cases of departure from the truth. They can't repent because their hearts are so hardened. They don't want to turn back to God. They don't want to repent. And earlier, he's warned against the hardened heart. And so he's saying, don't become like those people who let their hearts become so hardened that they refuse to repent. Well, those are the four views, most commonly that's given for this passage. And every view has some problems. You know, I can't tell you what's, the correct view here, because I don't know. And like I said, even the scholars don't agree. I will say I lean toward one of the two, the last two, one of those. But what I want us to do is not focus so much, as I said earlier, don't focus so much on the, the details that we don't totally understand. But we focus on the, the message of this passage press on to spiritual maturity don't get drift don't drift away don't get waylaid you press on to spiritual maturity his message that was it and to help them do that he addressed the meaning which is let the spirit carry us to maturity He addressed the problem, which is you need to move forward from the basics of Judaism to the reality of Christ and what he's done. The warning, that was the third thing we talked about, don't fall away. And then fourth, the last thing, he gave encouragement. We don't have much time to go through this. This really could have been three lectures, um, so I'm not going to have time to go through this in detail, but... Verses 9 to 18, he, he switches gears. And I love it. It's like in verse 9, he sort of pivots. and He says, but. And then he says, beloved. I mean, he has just really given them some hard words. And now he's saying, beloved, I love you. This is the only time he uses this word in the book of Hebrews. And so he's shifting to where he wants to give them encouragement. He says, we are convinced of better things concerning you. And In other words, there's so much better if you will leave behind the foundational principles of Judaism. Don't miss out. Get out of that nest and experience life the way Jesus wants you to. And he says, God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love that you've shown toward his name. In having ministered and in still ministering to the saints, again he's encouraging them in all that they've done. We desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who, through Christ, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. And then. In the following verses, he encouraged them in three ways. He had just talked about being imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So first, he refers to the example of Abraham in verses 13 to 15. Abraham was strong in faith and patience. He held tight to the promises of God and he did not fall away and stop growing in his relationship with God when God put him to the test and said, you sacrifice your only son. Abraham didn't say, that's it, God? I'm out of here. I'm turning away. No, he didn't. And he's saying, Abraham didn't turn away. You don't turn away either. You can do this. Second encouragement is the promise of God's character in verses 17 and 18. You know, he made an oath by himself. He wanted them to understand that God's character is solid. He's unchangeable. He's faithful. He always will be faithful. He will not lie. He cannot lie. And so that's encouragement to them. God is true to his word. And then the third encouragement, the anchor for our soul. Verses 19 to 20. In the first century, sailors would carry their ship's anchor. They would get in these little little boats and they'd carry the anchor to the shore and deposit it on the shore so that that ship would not drift away with all the waves and the wind out there. And in the same way, the hope that Jesus has planted firmly in heaven is our anchor. He's no longer here. He is seated at the right hand of God in the Holy of Holies. He is our anchor holding us down here. He is solid, holding us firm down here as the winds whip around us. But we have to just cling to that anchor. We cannot let go. Our anchor rests firmly in the Holy of Holies. So my challenge to us not to understand and be able to debate all these issues, but to press on to spiritual maturity. So just some questions for you to ponder from this lesson. Are you content with where you are in your spiritual growth today? Are you settling for status quo? It's like, hey, I'm good enough. I've learned enough. I don't need to go any further. I'm I'm just fine. Or are you like the little baby robin? I mean, are you like the baby robin? I don't want to go I don't want to go any further. I don't want to step out on that limb. I'm content with what I know. Is your faith ex- becoming stagnant? Or is your faith growing? Is your relationship with the Lord Going deeper. Do you want to go deeper? Do you want to know him more? Do you want to become more like Christ? Don't stop growing in your faith. And then another question to consider. If you are not pressing on to spiritual maturity, what is holding you back? Maybe it's fear or You're just feeling a little lazy. Don't really want to put the time into studying the word or praying. Maybe it's just complacency or sin. Don't stay there. I'm going to give you that pep talk like I gave that little robin. It's time for the little birdies to fly. And you are, but I want you to keep going. All of us, I'm saying this to myself, that we would press on to spiritual maturity. Let's pray. Father, I I admit I can't totally grasp everything in this chapter. The Lord one day will understand exactly what you were talking about here. But I pray that the words in this chapter of Hebrews would push us forward that we would say, God, I don't want to be like any of those examples. I want to press on. I want to be more like you. I want to grow in my maturity. And I pray that for each one of us, Lord, that we'd not settle for status quo, that we'd not go backwards, that we'd not let go of that anchor that we need so desperately in these times. Father, we love you. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.